Bible. Flip over just a few pages, if you would, please, to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. <clears throat> now, I'm just going to confess to you for a moment um, and be honest with you that I sense that I am in a little bit of a preaching rut, is what I call it, a, a preaching rut, where... Um, it's not necessarily an adequacy, um, but an inability to communicate the deep truths that have been impacted upon my heart all week long. And so, in other words, uh, I spend a whole week studying the text that we look at on Sunday morning and am so enriched by it and um, excited about it that when it comes time to preach it, I feel like I have done it a massive disservice. Um, it's hard on one hand, to try to condense everything down to just one sermon. Um, it's even harder when you're incredibly passionate about what you've studied all week long to then try to put it into words that people understand and maybe, just maybe, they'll get um, some of that contagious fire as well. I've found myself struggling with that through Philippians. Uh, Philippians has been a wonderful book to study and a very difficult book for me to communicate. So I'm telling you that's true also right now as we come to verse 12 this morning for this passage. It's been a wonderful week of study, a wonderful week of meditation, a wonderful week of contemplation. And uh, I'm very excited about this passage, but I know I'm going to butcher it. Um, and so that's encouraging, isn't it? Glad you're here this morning. Uh, I guess what I'm trying to tell you is uh, look past the preacher and look to the text and look at what the passage is saying. And don't look for sound bites and, and flashy arguments and things of that nature. Look for Christ. And find Christ in this text. And I think God will be faithful to us if we look for Christ and find Christ in this text. Uh, he'll just move all of us in the same way. And so that's... I just wanted to be open and honest this morning as we began because uh, I've been eager to get to this text for a while and I want you to look past it and let the Lord um, teach it to you through a very imperfect vessel. So we're going to look at, or at least take together as one whole, verses 12 through 18. Because Paul has changed thoughts in verse 11. He's going to change directions a little bit again in verse 19. So he's sharing kind of one thought in verses 12 through the first part of verse 18. And it's really a report but it's a report with a great purpose behind it. He's not just relaying some information or facts. He's telling us that even in prison, if you look down to verse 18, even in prison, he is filled with joy. And he uses the phrase, uh, we'll talk about it in a moment, but let me just cherry pick it out of the text. He's using the phrase, in that I rejoice. And then as we get into the changing of thought or direction in verse 19, it's still... Uh, by your Bible, my Bible, it's still verse 18. It should be verse 19. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. So here's the Apostle Paul. He's sitting in prison, chained to a guard, 24-7. Uh, and yet he says, I have a future joy that I know is coming. And I'm certain in it. And I'm expecting it. I'm eager about it. I'm excited about it. I will rejoice in the future. But also, I have a present joy. In verse 18, in that I 
rejoice. And verses 12 through 18 is him telling us why he's rejoicing presently, even though he's in what we might call dire circumstances. Now, in one sense, he's already told us about his joy. In verse 4 of chapter 1, he's told us that these Philippians are, these Philippian believers, they are his joy, and making prayers for them are his joy, and expressing thanks to God is his joy. He expresses thanks to God for them in joy. And by the time we get to chapter 4, verse 1, he says, You believers are my crown and my joy. But the joy he talks about in verses 12 through 18 is not the Philippian believers. Rather, it's Christ. Specifically, it's that Christ is being advanced or Christ is being proclaimed. So on one sense, in this letter, Paul can say, you Philippians, you are my joy. You are my crown. I derive much rejoicing from you. And in another sense, a much more potent, powerful sense, he says, the gospel in Christ is my life. And when Christ is proclaimed, that gives me lasting, deep, sustained joy. And so that's where we pick up in verse 12. Beginning with Christ being proclaimed in prison. I rejoice, by the end of verse 18, I rejoice first because Christ is advanced or proclaimed in prison. That's verse 12 and 13. And he says in verse 12 with this kind of pay attention phrase, I want you to know. Brothers and sisters, I want you to pay attention. Listen up. Give me your undivided focus here. I have something to tell you. And what I have to tell you isn't just for your information. On one hand, it is. One hand, they are, remember in verse 5 of chapter 1, partners with Him in the Gospel from the first day until now. They want to know on their end how the Gospel is advancing through Paul's ministry and life. But it becomes clear by the report itself, Paul has more things intended. He's reporting not just for their information, but for their comfort, for their instruction, for their encouragement, for their faith, and mainly because he can't contain it within himself. He is so moved, so eager, so passionate, so excited that I can't be quiet about what God is doing in my situation in prison. And so he says, I want you to know, no mistake, abundantly clear. And then he tells them what he wants them to know, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now take note of that phrase, what has happened to me because it's an important um, detail to understanding Paul's mindset of his situation he's in prison and we would assume in normal settings that that is enough reason for him to be in a state of despair right Uh, he's not in modern prison systems he's in the Roman prison system and Romans famously didn't care about their prisoners and so Rome, or Paul is in a Roman prison system. Though he's living in a house he, he rents on his own, he's still shackled to a guard. He's had all his rights removed, except for the ability to have a few visitors. And yet he says, what has happened to me has been a really good thing. Now that phrase, happened to me, indicates something external. He doesn't say, what I did to deserve to be here. He says, no, this has been thrust upon me. 
when he uses the phrase, what has happened to me, there's a clear absence of responsibility and ownership. In other words, Paul admits in a subtle way that I'm not here because I deserve to be here. I'm not paying the just penalty of a crime committed. This has happened to me. I've been put into this situation. I've been given these circumstances. This is an external act thrust upon my life. I find myself here. We call it a wrongful imprisonment. And we decry injustice here, right? But Paul says this this thing that happened to me, this wrongful imprisonment, is actually a really good thing. How can a wrongful imprisonment be a good thing? And he tells us it has really served a purpose. Now, when he majors on that word serve like he does in this writing, he's saying my attention is not on my circumstances, it's on the purpose. He's telling us on one hand, God can use any situation to serve his agenda, right? Even wrongful imprisonment can be a tool, an avenue of serving God's agenda. He places the imprisonment as the object which God uses to accomplish his purpose. That's what he means by using the word serve. It also tells us his mind is set on that purpose, not on his situation or circumstance. Which is a terrific example of following Christ. In other words, Paul is not focused on his comforts. He's not focused on his freedoms. He's not focused on his rights, his luxuries, his pleasures, his desires. He is focused on this singular purpose. And it's in that vein and in that reality he can say this wrongful imprisonment is a really, really good thing. It has furthered in a major way my greatest singular desire. What is that desire? That the gospel be advanced. See, the believers in Philippi, they were his joy and his crown. The gospel is his life. Christ being proclaimed is everything to him. It is the singular purpose, the singular reason for his existence. And so when his comforts are stripped away, and when his luxuries are removed, and when his liberties and rights and freedoms are revoked, he can still say, I rejoice. Because the purpose of my life is going forth, going forward, advancing. He tells us how he has this attitude in chapter 3. We're not there yet, but hopefully by God's grace we will get there. It's in chapter 3, verse 8. He says, I count everything as loss compared to the worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. How do you and I struggle with our constant desire of, of promoting self, right? We all have that. How do we fight our selfishnessness? How do we fight our selfish desires? How do we fight our selfish ambition, our longing for comfort, our longing for our pleasures, our longing for our luxuries? If we're honest, most of the time, that's what hinders us from faithful service to Christ, right? Right? 
I don't want to get out of my comfort zone. I don't want to sacrifice. I don't want to give up this or that. How do we adopt this mentality that Paul's expressing? How do we live this life? It's the same answer Paul gives in chapter 3. I've come to see and to know and to taste that Christ is so infinitely valuable that everything else in life can be discarded. That seems like a super apostle, right? That's what he calls himself sarcastically in other parts of his writing. That, that seems like something only the greatest Christian who ever lived would write and say. But in reality, that should be normal in the Christian world. There's something about Jesus that we taste, that we know, that we experience, that we understand in this life where He becomes the greatest person, the greatest thing to such a degree that everything else in life can be discarded and fall away. Even to the point that good and noble things like mom and dad and son and daughter are put in a far distant second place to Christ. How do we get this attitude? How do we have this mindset where we can be wrongfully imprisoned and still say it's a really good thing because we so value the advancement of the gospel? How do we get there? It's by ourselves becoming enamored with Jesus. The truth is, no one can sacrifice their comfort. No one can sacrifice their ambitions. No one can sacrifice their luxuries or their rights or anything else for the renown of another person without being so overly whelmed, overwhelmingly moved by that other person. And Paul writes and he says, I have so tasted of the Gospel. And I have so tasted of Christ. It has such an impact upon my life that God in all of His glory and holiness would forgive my sins that my heart beats only for Jesus. And I enjoy other things and I enjoy other people and I do other things, but I do it all for the sake of the Gospel. It's a remarkable statement of self-sacrifice. It's a life that's been reoriented, isn't it? A life that's had its priorities changed. A life that's convinced of the supreme worth of Jesus. Perhaps that is our singular antidote to selfishness or selfish ambition. To taste and see and experience and know the supreme worth of Christ. So he says, pay, pay attention in verse 12. Listen up, I have good news. And that good news is that my imprisonment has really furthered my greatest desire, the advancement of the Gospel. And he tells us how it's been furthered in verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So he changes a little bit in verse 13. It's not that they're hearing the gospel, that's not explicitly what he's focusing on. Doubtless that's what he's sharing with these people. But rather, what he's talking about is that these people know I'm here because of Jesus. Now let's talk a little bit about the people he's referencing. The whole 
imperial guard, and to all the rest. Your Bible might say or have a footnote, the praetorium guard. These were the elite military soldiers of Rome. And their task was exclusively to guard and protect Caesar and those close to Caesar and political prisoners and things of that nature. Their camp or their company made up, was made up of about 9,000 soldiers. Paul is not saying that he has met with all 9,000 or that all 9,000 have guarded him. Furthermore, he adds to that list when he says all the rest, it's safe to conclude he's meaning the rest of Caesar's household. Not just guards and soldiers, but even servants. And surely he hasn't met with all the servants of Caesar's household. So what is he saying? He's saying that my reputation, my story, and the reason that I'm here has spread through the camp from person to person. In other words, I want you to know that the Gospels advance. And how has it advanced? They're talking about me. Now, I said earlier, Paul was chained to a guard 24-7. That was true. And they changed shifts. And it was common for guards coming on shift, especially new ones, to ask those whom they're being chained to, why are you here? One, out of curiosity, just general reasons. What's the reason for your chain? The other, so that they might know who they're dealing with. If I'm dealing with somebody like Paul, it's good to know that he's not a murderer. He's not a threat to my life. So they come in and they say, what's the reason for your chains? Why are you in prison? And Paul, doubtlessly, we know him, shares the Gospel, right? And they begin to hear the message. They begin to witness his joy, his kindness. They begin to witness the love of brothers and sisters who send people like Epaphroditus to minister to him, who, who come from hundreds of miles away to meet his material needs, helping pay rent for the house that he's living in and responsible for. And this begins to have an impact on these guards and on the servants who might come by and check on him and relay information. And they begin to talk to each other when they're not around Paul. And surely... As new guards come to guard him, they say, I've heard of you. You're the one that's oddly joyful. And you're the one that talks about this Jewish man that has died and supposedly resurrected from the dead. You're a strange prisoner. But I've heard of you. Paul tells us in verse 13 explicitly what they've heard. That his imprisonment is for Christ. I'm not here on high crimes. I'm not here for anything dangerous. I'm here for my allegiance to one man. Purely for my allegiance to that man. We know why Paul's in prison actually. Because the Jews uh, in Jerusalem had him imprisoned. And after a few years of being imprisoned in Jerusalem, Paul appeals with his Roman citizenship, to be tried by Caesar. And so he's trucked to Rome over a long course of events. And this is where he finds himself, waiting his appeal to Caesar. And while he's waiting, he's imprisoned. And while he's imprisoned, the guards and the servants are learning his imprisonment is for Christ. But Paul's actually much more precise in his language than saying my imprisonment is for Christ. The literal language is my imprisonment is in Christ. That's his favorite phrase to use in the New Testament. And I think it has much 
more significant meaning in this verse. It should say, or could say, most, um, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment, my chains, or my bonds are in Christ. In other words, the guards walk in and they ask Paul, what's the reason for your chains? And he says, oh, these are Christ's chains. I'm a prisoner of Christ. Now, these are supposed to be Caesar's chains. They're supposed to be a symbol of Rome's power and of Rome's authority. You're a prisoner of Rome. Any guard who would have heard Paul say this would have seen his insurrectionist threats to Caesar. But Paul says, these aren't Rome's chains. These are Christ's chains. Jesus is my captor. He's my master and my Lord. I'm not bound by Rome. I'm bound by Christ. A different King, a different Lord, and a different Savior. All three of those titles are titles that Caesar liked to use for himself. King, Lord, and Savior. And Paul says, no. He may have fashioned these chains, but I'm in them for Christ. And I'm in them in Christ. That's the only reason Paul can have joy in his situation. The only reason for his delight or his excitement or his kindness towards these guards. It's the very reason for his allegiance to Jesus. I'm bound to a better king. A glorious king. And it's that understanding of Paul's imprisonment that my imprisonment isn't just for Christ, but it's in Christ. He's already said that at the beginning of the letter when he calls himself a slave of Christ Jesus. Now he calls himself in verse 13 a prisoner in Christ Jesus. It's in that understanding that all of his life takes its priorities and its perspective and its alignment. And so it should be for our lives as well, church. I tell my class at Swasu all the time, things in life only make sense and human flourishing is only possible in proper relationship to God. The world only makes sense in proper relation to God. We only make sense in proper relation to God. And same is true for our Christian life. Our Christian life only comes to its flourishing, thriving potential in proper relation to Jesus Christ. When it's properly understood in light of the Lord. When it's properly aligned to the will of God. When we rightfully understand that we are prisoners in Christ, everything is put in its proper perspective, isn't it? The source of our joy. The reason for our being. The reason for our careers. The reason for our families. The reason we live where we live and do what we do and like what we like. Everything is bound up in connection to us being prisoners in Christ Jesus. That church is how we sacrifice our comforts. And that's how we sacrifice our luxuries for the advancement of the name of Christ in this world. We realize that we don't live for ourselves, do we? 
We've come to find a life in God that is far better. Paul is so awestruck by both the glory and the love of Christ that it becomes his singular joy to spend himself for Jesus. And there's a difference in spending yourself and merely offering yourself. Hopefully, out of goodwill and good motive, we all offer ourselves to Christ, right? But we are called to spend ourselves for Christ. Which means to put forth everything. Invest everything. Run until the fumes are the only thing we have to live on and they run out. Spend ourselves for Christ until one day we wake up in glory. All with the understanding that we spend ourselves for Christ regardless of whatever that may mean for our lives. Now, moving on to verse 14, there's another second um, consequence of Paul's imprisonment that leads to his rejoicing. And it's that Christ is proclaimed by the brothers and sisters. Christ is proclaimed in prison because He's unashamedly made it known that I'm bound in Christ. And let me tell you about Christ. He's the Lord and Savior the forgiver of sin, and all those things. So the Gospel is advanced. Verse 14, he rejoices because Christ is proclaimed by brothers and sisters. He says most of them, that doesn't mean all, but it does mean the majority, have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. Now the emphasis in that phrase is confidence in the Lord, not devotion to Paul. His imprisonment hasn't mean that they're more dedicated to Him or more dedicated to His cause or more dedicated to His calling or more dedicated to His agenda. No, His imprisonment has led to them being more confident in Christ. Now how does Paul's imprisonment result in confidence in Christ? It's because they recognize what you and I should recognize. Paul's merely a man in chains trying to be faithful. Nothing more, nothing less. The Gospel advances in His imprisonment by the power of Jesus alone. The the word of His imprisonment for Christ, the word of the Gospel, it's not spreading around the Roman capital city by Paul's ability. He's a prisoner. Helpless. Chained up. It spreads by Christ's desire and plan and will. Such is typically the way God works. The singular government that opposed Christianity has, by chaining Paul, unleashed the very message of Christianity. Such has been true all throughout church history. Such is true in hostile countries today. You try to smother out the name of Christ, and what happens? The flame burns brighter. You try to put out the torch of the Gospel, and it spreads like a grass fire. Such happened in Rome. They tried to stop Christianity and those who proclaimed Christ and were allegiant to Christ because they may be a threat to Caesar. Let's put their, or let's keep their chief apostle in prison. And yet, what happens? Confidence in the Lord is placed in the believers. It's because they look at Paul and they don't see a man who's 
setting the world on fire. They look at Paul and they see a Savior who cares for him, preserves him, and who has a message and agenda that cannot and will not be stopped. In other words, Paul's report is going out to Rome and it's going out to other churches and it's going out to Philippi that the Gospel's advancing because of his imprisonment. And they look at that and they say, wow, Christ is faithful. Christ is powerful. Christ will win. Christ will succeed. It's not about the faith of Paul, though it's commendable. It's about the goodness of God to use weak, frail, imperfect, and even imprisoned vessels to accomplish His purpose and His agenda. And so the brothers and the sisters, they look at Paul and they say, if God can use someone in prison for His agenda, surely He can use me. His imprisonment leads to confidence in Christ. They see that not even the mighty Roman Empire will stop Jesus. Just like the mighty empire of Egypt didn't stop God. Or the mighty empire of the Assyrians didn't stop God. Rome won't stop Jesus. Satan won't stop Jesus. The world won't stop Jesus. And so the empty threats of the Roman government to stop preaching Christ and stop following Christ and stop worshiping Christ, they are just that, empty threats. Even if I'm in prison like Paul, and even if my life is taken, Christ will still win. And so, they have this confidence in the Lord that totally, totally reorients their lives. The, the language tells us that there was a sense of confidence among them. But that confidence has increased. Why? Surely it's because they realize if Christ can't be stopped by Rome, then my hope is sure, isn't it? If not even the chains on the apostle can stop the gospel, my salvation must certainly be secure. And so they have a confidence in their Lord. That confidence leads to, in verse 14, a boldness. Again, it implies that there was some boldness, but that boldness was probably like our boldness. Often squelched by fear, right? And the threats of opposition, and the worry of forfeited reputation. There's a boldness that we possess as Christians until we walk out the doors determined to talk to somebody about Jesus, then we're terrified. But no, this confidence in Christ, in the Lord, in verse 14, has led to much more boldness in the brothers and sisters. Boldness to sacrifice like the apostle. Boldness that has driven out fear. Notice what Paul says. They're much more bold to speak the word without fear. And they had ample reason to have fear, right? Everything about the message they proclaim is life-threatening to them. Yet fear is driven out by a boldness. And a boldness comes from confidence in the Lord. And confidence in the Lord comes from witnessing Him preserve and faithfully care for and advance His Gospel through His people. So they have this boldness to do something. Notice what it is to speak the Word. I think 
we would do well to devote attention to that phrase. It's not that they have this newfound courage to live a good moral life or to just merely be a good example or this newfound courage to start going to church. Those are all things they're doing anyways. It's now that they have a boldness to speak. To verbally share the name and message of Christ. Consider that verbal message with me. They have to talk about God being the only God, don't they? The emperor's not God. Caesar's not God. There's only one God. And He's the one Creator. And as Creator, we're accountable to Him. We have to answer to Him. He's the boss and we're not. They have to, if they're verbally going to speak the Word, they have to talk about sin, don't they? It's not the world's most popular message. To say none of us is good, no, not one, no one seeks for God. Our throats are open graves. Our lips have venom in them. We're liars, murderers, immoral people. We've sinned against this God, and there's a penalty for that. And if sin's not popular, certainly the penalty of sin isn't popular. And what is that penalty? Death. More specifically, eternal hell. And then they talk and they say, the only way to be forgiven from this sin and saved from this sin and to avoid this penalty is in this Jewish man, Jesus. Whom, by the way, was killed on a Roman cross. Then they must talk about the victory of Jesus over sin. And the victory of Jesus over death. And the victory of Jesus, yes, even over this Roman cross and His resurrection. Try as you may, Caesar. You cannot kill Christ. And then they must talk about the eternal reign and the rule of Jesus as universal King. King of kings that even one day your mighty emperor will bow down to. This is a message that they could be killed over and yet now they are speaking boldly about Him. Filled with boldness, in verse 14, to verbally speak this message without fear. And how do we deal with fear in our evangelism so that we, we might do what they're doing? How do we speak verbally the gospel message of Christ even in the face of honest hostility? And how do we do it without fear? Every Christian I've ever met and ever talked to about evangelism has that question. Here's the answer. It's by being so moved and overwhelmed with Jesus that you don't regard self any longer. Your only purpose is Christ. You notice it's the same answer for Paul's joy and imprisonment. How does Paul have joy in his circumstances? It's the same way that Christians overcome fear in evangelism. 
They are so confident in the Lord, so moved by Jesus, so in love with Christ, that regard for self diminishes and regard for Christ only increases. Paul writes and he says, there's been perhaps an unintended consequence of my imprisonment. The church is being strengthened. And brothers and sisters, instead of living for themselves, are living now for Christ. And our lives are being changed and confidence in the Lord is abounding. And so boldness to speak about the Lord is abounding. Specifically, boldness to speak without fear. Church, that has always been the case from this point on all throughout church history, hasn't it? We see God's wonderful preservation of His people and it spurs us on to faithfulness ourselves. I read this week of two workers of the English Reformation in Oxford, England in the year 1555. They were named Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. Some of you know their names. They were faithfully proclaiming Christ in the Protestant Reformation. And their punishment was to be burned at the stake. Not uncommon. As they were being tied to the stake and led to the stake and the the lumber was being prepared and the fire readied and they were preparing to burn, there came a shout from Hugh Latimer. This is what he yelled. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. For we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. They know, and we know what they're talking about. The candle that they're talking about is their very bodies. How do they go to the stake to be burned? view themselves as candles to be lit by God that shall never be extinguished in England for the sake of the Gospel, it's because they see the faithful preservation of Christ centuries past of all of His saints who have been faithful to endure for His name. Men like Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley and Countless other faithful martyrs of Christ stand even today for us as beacons of light of God's goodness to accomplish His purpose even if it cost us everything. And you know what? It can cost us our lives and we can give up those lives with joy because we know we gain absolutely everything. Paul might write in chapter 3 of this letter, I suffer the loss of all things. But he knows he hasn't really lost anything. Because the supreme worth and value of Christ is everything. He can write about his joy in prison. And the brothers and sisters in verse 14 can speak the word of the Lord with all boldness, without fear. Because they know in Christ they have gained everything. Church, our lives are about the proclamation of Christ. 
It's about the gospel being advanced. Whether that be in prison, our imprisonment, whether that be through the sacrifice of our security, our health, our safety, our reputation, we rejoice. The reason for our rejoicing is in the advancement of the gospel of Christ. That message that God in His love will forgive our sins if we trust in Jesus alone. If we place our faith in Christ alone. What's the reason for this apostle rejoicing? It's Christ. You and I can look to the faithful brothers and sisters who are this day underneath the altar in heaven, martyred for the name and sake of Christ. We can look at their reward. We can look at God's faithfulness to them. And we can see that by God's goodness, their message of salvation, which is Christ's message of salvation, has persevered to us today, to our ears and to our mouths. And we can trust that even if we have to lay down our lives, Christ will still win and succeed through our efforts. Father, would you spur within us evangelistic zeal, a passion for your name alone. Help us to lay aside every selfish ambition and and selfish desire and to give ourselves wholly, completely, clearly to You. And we can confess to You that we have fear. We ask that You would give us confidence in You and boldness that would remove fear. That we might speak the Word faithfully, endure opposition, and see every opportunity and every moment and every circumstance and situation of life as a gift to spread your name to the lost. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll flip over just a few pages, if you would, please, to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse. 12. Now I'm just going to confess to you for a moment um, and be honest with you that I sense that I am in a little bit of a preaching rut is what I call it, a a preaching rut where um, it's not necessarily an adequacy, um, but an inability to communicate the deep truths that have been impacted upon my heart all week long. And so in other words, Uh, I spend a whole week studying the text that we look at on Sunday morning and am so enriched by it and um, excited about it that when it comes time to preach it, I feel like I have done it a massive disservice. Um, It's hard, on one hand, to try to condense everything down to just one sermon. Um, It's even harder when you're incredibly passionate about what you've studied all week long, to then try to put it into words that people understand and maybe, just maybe, they'll get um, some of that contagious fire as well. I've found myself struggling with that through Philippians. 
Uh, Philippians has been a wonderful book to study and a very difficult book for me to communicate. So I'm telling you that's true also right now as we come to verse 12 this morning for this passage. It's been a wonderful week of study, a wonderful week of meditation, a wonderful week of contemplation. And uh, I'm very excited about this passage, but I know I'm going to butcher it. Um, And so that's encouraging, isn't it? Glad you're here this morning. Uh, I guess what I'm trying to tell you is uh, look past the preacher and look to the text and look at what the passage is saying and don't look for sound bites and, and flashy arguments and things of that nature. Look for Christ and find Christ in this text And I think God will be faithful to us if we look for Christ and find Christ in this text. uh, He'll just move all of us in the same way. And so that's I just wanted to be open and honest this morning as we began, because uh, I've been eager to get to this text for a while. And I want you to look past it and let the Lord um, teach it to you through a very imperfect vessel. So we're going to look at or at least take together as one whole Verses 12 through 18, because Paul has changed thoughts in verse 11. He's going to change directions a little bit again in verse 19. So he's sharing kind of one thought in verses 12 through the first part of verse 18. And it's really a report, but it's a report with a great purpose behind it. He's not just relaying some information or facts. He's telling us that even in prison, if you look down to verse 18, even in prison, he is filled with joy. And he uses the phrase, uh, we'll talk about it in a moment, but let me just cherry pick it out of the text. He's using the phrase, in that I rejoice. And then as we get into the changing of thought or direction in verse 19, it's still uh, by your Bible, my Bible, it's still verse 18, it should be verse 19. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. So here's the Apostle Paul, he's sitting in prison, chained to a guard, uh, 24-7, And yet he says, I have a future joy that I know is coming. And I'm certain in it. And I'm expecting it. I'm eager about it. I'm excited about it. I will rejoice in the future. But also, I have a present joy. In verse 18. In that I rejoice. And verses 12 through 18 is him telling us why he's rejoicing presently, even though he's in what we might call dire circumstances. Now, in one sense, he's already told us about his joy. In verse 4 of chapter 1, he's told us that these Philippians are, these Philippian believers, they are his joy. And making prayers for them are his joy. And expressing thanks to God is his joy. He expresses thanks to God for them in joy. And by the time we get to chapter 4, verse 1, he says, you believers are my crown and my joy. But the joy he talks about in verses 12 through 18 is not the Philippian believers. Rather, it's Christ. Specifically, it's that Christ is being advanced or Christ is being proclaimed. So in one sense, in this letter, Paul can say, you Philippians, you are my joy. You are my crown. I derive much rejoicing from you. And in another sense, a much more potent, powerful sense, he says, the gospel in Christ is my life. And when Christ is proclaimed, that gives me lasting, deep, sustained joy. And so that's where we pick up in verse 12. Beginning with Christ being proclaimed in prison. 
I rejoice, by the end of verse 18, I rejoice first because Christ is advanced or proclaimed in prison. That's verse 12 and 13. And he says in verse 12 with this kind of pay attention phrase, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, I want you to pay attention. Listen up. Give me your undivided focus here. I have something to tell you. And what I have to tell you isn't just for your information. On one hand, it is. One hand, they are, remember in verse 5 of chapter 1, partners with Him in the Gospel from the first day until now. They want to know on their end how the Gospel is advancing through Paul's ministry and life. But it becomes clear by the report itself, Paul has more things intended. He's reporting not just for their information, but for their comfort, for their instruction, for their encouragement, for their faith, and mainly because he can't contain it within himself. He is so moved, so eager, so passionate, so excited that I can't be quiet about what God is doing in my situation in prison. And so he says, I want you to know, no mistake, abundantly clear. And then he tells them what he wants them to know. That what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now take note of that phrase, what has happened to me. Because it's an important um, detail to understanding Paul's mindset of his situation. He's in prison, and we would assume in normal settings that that is enough reason for him to be in a state of despair, right? Uh, he's not in modern prison systems, he's in the Roman prison system. And Romans famously didn't care about their prisoners. And so Rome, or Paul is in a Roman prison system, though he's living in a house he, he rents on his own. He's still shackled to a guard. He's had all his rights removed, except for the ability to have a few visitors. And yet he says, what has happened to me has been a really good thing. Now that phrase, happened to me, indicates something external. He doesn't say, what I did to deserve to be here. He says, no, this has been thrust upon me. When he uses the phrase, what has happened to me, there's a clear absence of responsibility and ownership. In other words, Paul admits in a subtle way that I'm not here because I deserve to be here. I'm not paying the just penalty of a crime committed. This has happened to me. I've been put into this situation. I've been given these circumstances. This is an external act thrust upon my life. I find myself here. We call it a wrongful imprisonment. And we decry injustice here, right? But Paul says this, this thing that happened to me, this wrongful imprisonment, is actually a really good thing. How can a wrongful imprisonment be a good thing? And he tells us it has really served a purpose. Now, when he majors on that word serve like he does in this writing, he's saying my attention is not on my circumstances, it's on the purpose. He's telling us on one hand, God can use any situation to serve His agenda, right? 
Even wrongful imprisonment can be a tool, an avenue of serving God's agenda. He places the imprisonment as the object which God uses to accomplish His purpose. That's what he means by using the word serve. It also tells us his mind is set on that purpose, not on his situation or circumstance. Which is a terrific example of following Christ. In other words, Paul is not focused on his comforts. He's not focused on his freedoms. He's not focused on his rights, his luxuries, his pleasures, his desires. He is focused on this singular purpose. And it's in that vein and in that reality he can say this wrongful imprisonment is a really, really good thing. It has furthered in a major way my greatest singular desire. And what is that desire? That the gospel be advanced. See, the believers in Philippi, they were his joy and his crown. The gospel is his life. Christ being proclaimed is everything to him. It is the singular purpose, the singular reason for his existence. And so when his comforts are stripped away, and when his luxuries are removed, and when his liberties and rights and freedoms are revoked, he can still say, I rejoice because the purpose of my life is going forth, going forward, advancing. He tells us how he has this attitude in chapter 3. We're not there yet, but hopefully by God's grace we will get there. It's in chapter 3, verse 8. He says, I count everything as loss compared to the worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. How do you and I struggle with our constant desire of, of promoting self? Right? We all have that. How do we fight our selfishness? How do we fight our selfish desires? How do we fight our selfish ambition? Our longing for comfort. Our longing for our pleasures. Our longing for our luxuries. If we're honest, most of the time, that's what hinders us from faithful service to Christ, right? I don't want to get out of my comfort zone. I don't want to sacrifice. I don't want to give up this or that. How do we adopt this mentality that Paul's expressing? How do we live this life? It's the same answer Paul gives in chapter 3. I've come to see and to know and to taste that Christ is so infinitely valuable that everything else in life can be discarded. That seems like a super apostle, right? That's what he calls himself sarcastically. In other parts of his writing. That, that seems like something only the greatest Christian who ever lived would write and say. But in reality, that should be normal in the Christian world. There's something about Jesus that we taste, that we know, that we experience, that we understand in this life where He becomes the greatest person, the greatest thing to such a degree that everything else in life can be discarded and fall away. Even to the point that good and noble things like mom and dad and son and daughter are put in a far distant second place to Christ. 
How do we get this attitude? How do we have this mindset where we can be wrongfully imprisoned and still say it's a really good thing because we so value the advancement of the gospel? How do we get there? It's by ourselves becoming enamored with Jesus. The truth is, no one can sacrifice their comfort. No one can sacrifice their ambitions. No one can sacrifice their luxuries or their rights or anything else for the renown of another person without being so overly whelmed, overwhelmingly moved by that other person. And Paul writes and he says, I have so tasted of the Gospel. And I have so tasted of Christ. It has such an impact upon my life that God in all of His glory and holiness would forgive my sins that my heart beats only for Jesus. And I enjoy other things and I enjoy other people and I do other things, but I do it all for the sake of the Gospel. It's a remarkable statement of self-sacrifice. It's a life that's been reoriented, isn't it? A life that's had its priorities changed. A life that's convinced of the supreme worth of Jesus. Perhaps that is our singular antidote to selfishness or selfish ambition. To taste and see and experience and know the supreme worth of Christ. So he says, pay, pay attention in verse 12. Listen up, I have good news. And that good news is that my imprisonment has really furthered my greatest desire, the advancement of the Gospel. And he tells us how it's been furthered in verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So he changes a little bit in verse 13. It's not that they're hearing the gospel. That's not explicitly what he's focusing on. Doubtless that's what he's sharing with these people. But rather, what he's talking about is that these people know I'm here because of Jesus. Now let's talk a little bit about the people he's referencing. The whole imperial guard and to all the rest. Your Bible might say or have a footnote, the praetorium guard. These were the elite military soldiers of Rome. And their task was exclusively to guard and protect Caesar and those close to Caesar and political prisoners and things of that nature. Their camp or their company made up, was made up of about 9,000 soldiers. Paul is not saying that he has met with all 9,000 or that all 9,000 have guarded him. Furthermore, he adds to that list when he says all the rest, it's safe to conclude he's meaning the rest of Caesar's household. Not just guards and soldiers, but even servants. And surely he hasn't met with all the servants of Caesar's household. So what is he saying? He's saying that my reputation, my story, and the reason that I'm here has spread through the camp from person to person. In other words, I want you to know that the gospel's advanced. And how has it advanced? They're talking about me. Now, I said earlier, Paul was chained to a guard 24-7. That was true. And they changed shifts. And it was common for 
guards coming on shift, especially new ones, to ask those whom they're being chained to, why are you here? One, out of curiosity, just general reasons. Well, what's the reason for your chain? The other, so that they might know who they're dealing with. If I'm dealing with somebody like Paul, it's good to know that he's not a murderer. He's not a threat to my life. So they come in and they say, what's the reason for your chains? Why are you in prison? And Paul, doubtlessly, we know him, shares the gospel, right? And they begin to hear the message. They begin to witness his joy, his kindness. They begin to witness the love of brothers and sisters who send people like Epaphroditus to minister to him, who, who come from hundreds of miles away to meet his material needs, helping pay rent for the house that he's living in and responsible for. And this begins to have an impact on these guards and on the servants who might come by and check on him and relay information. And they begin to talk to each other when they're not around Paul. And surely... As new guards come to guard him, they say, I've heard of you. You're the one that's oddly joyful. And you're the one that talks about this Jewish man that has died and supposedly resurrected from the dead. You're a strange prisoner. But I've heard of you. Paul tells us in verse 13 explicitly what they've heard. That his imprisonment is for Christ. I'm not here on high crimes. I'm not here for anything dangerous. I'm here for my allegiance to one man. Purely for my allegiance to that man. We know why Paul's in prison actually. Because the Jews uh, in Jerusalem had him imprisoned. And after a few years of being imprisoned in Jerusalem, Paul appeals with his Roman citizenship, to be tried by Caesar. And so he's trucked to Rome over a long course of events. And this is where he finds himself, waiting his appeal to Caesar. And while he's waiting, he's imprisoned. And while he's imprisoned, the guards and the servants are learning his imprisonment is for Christ. But Paul's actually much more precise in his language than saying my imprisonment is for Christ. The literal language is my imprisonment is in Christ. That's his favorite phrase to use in the New Testament. And I think it has much more significant meaning in this verse. It should say, or could say, most, um, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment, my chains, or my bonds are in Christ. In other words, the guards walk in and they ask Paul, what's the reason for your chains? And he says, oh, these are Christ's chains. I'm a prisoner of Christ. Now, these are supposed to be Caesar's chains. They're supposed to be a symbol of Rome's power and of Rome's authority. You're a prisoner of Rome. Any guard who would have heard Paul say this would have seen his insurrectionist threats to Caesar. But Paul says, these aren't Rome's chains. These are Christ's chains. Jesus is my captor. He's my master and my Lord. I'm not bound by Rome. I'm bound by Christ. A different King, a different Lord, and a different Savior. 
All three of those titles are titles that Caesar liked to use for himself. King, Lord, and Savior. And Paul says no. He may have fashioned these chains, but I'm in them for Christ. And I'm in them in Christ. That's the only reason Paul can have joy in his situation. The only reason for his delight or his excitement or his kindness towards these guards. It's the very reason for his allegiance to Jesus. I'm bound to a better king. A glorious king. And it's that understanding of Paul's imprisonment that my imprisonment isn't just for Christ, but it's in Christ. He's already said that at the beginning of the letter when he calls himself a slave of Christ Jesus. Now he calls himself in verse 13 a prisoner in Christ Jesus. It's in that understanding that all of his life takes its priorities and its perspective and its alignment. And so it should be for our lives as well, church. I tell my class at Swasu all the time, things in life only make sense and human flourishing is only possible in proper relationship to God. The world only makes sense in proper relation to God. We only make sense in proper relation to God. And same is true for our Christian life. Our Christian life only comes to its flourishing, thriving potential in proper relation to Jesus Christ. When it's properly understood in light of the Lord. When it's properly aligned to the will of God. When we rightfully understand that we are prisoners in Christ, everything is put in its proper perspective, isn't it? The source of our joy. The reason for our being. The reason for our careers. The reason for our families. The reason we live where we live and do what we do and like what we like. Everything is bound up in connection to us being prisoners in Christ Jesus. That church is how we sacrifice our comforts and that's how we sacrifice our luxuries for the advancement of the name of Christ in this world. We realize that we don't live for ourselves, do we? We've come to find a life in God that is far better. Paul is so awestruck by both the glory and the love of Christ that it becomes his singular joy to spend himself for Jesus. And there's a difference in spending yourself and merely offering yourself. Hopefully, out of goodwill and good motive, we all offer ourselves to Christ, right? But we are called to spend ourselves for Christ. Which means to put forth everything. Invest everything. Run until the fumes are the only thing we have to live on and they run out. Spend ourselves for Christ until one day we wake up in glory. All with the understanding that we spend ourselves for Christ regardless of whatever that may mean for our lives. Now, moving on to verse 14, there's another second um, consequence of Paul's imprisonment that leads to his rejoicing. 
And it's that Christ is proclaimed by the brothers and sisters. Christ is proclaimed in prison because He's unashamedly made it known that I'm bound in Christ. And let me tell you about Christ. He's the Lord and Savior. The forgiver of sin and all those things. So the Gospel is advanced. Verse 14, He rejoices because Christ is proclaimed by brothers and sisters. He says most of them, that doesn't mean all, but it does mean the majority, have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. Now the emphasis in that phrase is confidence in the Lord, not devotion to Paul. His imprisonment hasn't mean that they're more dedicated to him, or more dedicated to his cause, or more dedicated to his calling, or more dedicated to his agenda. No, his imprisonment has led to them being more confident in Christ. Now how does Paul's imprisonment result in confidence in Christ? It's because they recognize what you and I should recognize. Paul's merely a man in chains trying to be faithful. Nothing more, nothing less. The Gospel advances in his imprisonment by the power of Jesus alone. The, the word of his imprisonment for Christ, the word of the Gospel, it's not spreading around the Roman capital city by Paul's ability. He's a prisoner. Helpless. Chained up. It spreads by Christ's desire and plan and will. Such is typically the way God works. The singular government that opposed Christianity has, by chaining Paul, unleashed the very message of Christianity. Such has been true all throughout church history. Such is true in hostile countries today. You try to smother out the name of Christ, and what happens? The flame burns brighter. You try to put out the torch of the Gospel, and it spreads like a grass fire. Such happened in Rome. They tried to stop Christianity and those who proclaimed Christ and were allegiant to Christ because they may be a threat to Caesar. Let's put their, or let's keep their chief apostle in prison. And yet, what happens? Confidence in the Lord is placed in the believers. It's because they look at Paul and they don't see a man who's setting the world on fire, they look at Paul and they see a Savior who cares for him, preserves him, and who has a message and agenda that cannot and will not be stopped. In other words, Paul's report is going out to Rome and it's going out to other churches and it's going out to Philippi that the Gospel's advancing because of his imprisonment. And they look at that and they say, wow, Christ is faithful. Christ is powerful. Christ will win. Christ will succeed. It's not about the faith of Paul, though it's commendable. It's about the goodness of God to use weak, frail, imperfect, and even imprisoned vessels to accomplish His purpose and His agenda. And so the brothers and the sisters, they look at Paul and they say, if God can use someone in prison for His agenda, surely He can use me. His imprisonment leads to confidence in Christ. They see that not even the mighty Roman Empire will stop Jesus. Just like the mighty empire of Egypt didn't stop God. 
or the mighty empire of the Assyrians didn't stop God. Rome won't stop Jesus. Satan won't stop Jesus. The world won't stop Jesus. And so the empty threats of the Roman government to stop preaching Christ and stop following Christ and stop worshiping Christ, they are just that, empty threats. Even if I'm in prison like Paul, and even if my life is taken, Christ will still win. And so, they have this confidence in the Lord that totally, totally reorients their lives. The, the language tells us that there was a sense of confidence among them. But that confidence has increased. Why? Surely it's because they realize if Christ can't be stopped by Rome, then my hope is sure, isn't it? If not even the chains on the apostle can stop the gospel, my salvation must certainly be secure. And so they have a confidence in their Lord. That confidence leads to, in verse 14, a boldness. Again, it implies that there was some boldness, but that boldness was probably like our boldness, often squelched by fear, right? And the threats of opposition and the worry of forfeited reputation. There's a boldness that we possess as Christians until we walk out the doors determined to talk to somebody about Jesus, then we're terrified. But no, this confidence in Christ, in the Lord, in verse 14, has led to much more boldness in the brothers and sisters. Boldness to sacrifice like the apostle. Boldness that has driven out fear. Notice what Paul says. They're much more bold to speak the word without fear. And they had ample reason to have fear, right? Everything about the message they proclaim is life-threatening to them. Yet fear is driven out by a boldness. And a boldness comes from confidence in the Lord. And confidence in the Lord comes from witnessing Him preserve and faithfully care for and advance His gospel through His people. So they have this boldness to do something. Notice what it is to speak the Word. I think we would do well to devote attention to that phrase. It's not that they have this newfound courage to live a good moral life or to just merely be a good example or this newfound courage to start going to church. Those are all things they're doing anyways. It's now that they have a boldness to speak. To verbally share the name and message of Christ. Consider that verbal message with me. They have to talk about God being the only God, don't they? Emperor, the emperor's not God. Caesar's not God. There's only one God. And He's the one Creator. And as Creator, we're accountable to Him. We have to answer to Him. He's the boss and we're not. They have to, if they're verbally going to speak the Word, they have to talk about sin, don't they? It's not the world's most popular message. 
to say none of us is good, no, not one, no one seeks for God. Our throats are open graves. Our lips have venom in them. We're liars, murderers, immoral people. We've sinned against this God, and there's a penalty for that. And if sin's not popular, certainly the penalty of sin isn't popular. And what is that penalty? Death. More specifically, eternal hell. And then they talk and they say, the only way to be forgiven from this sin and saved from this sin and to avoid this penalty is in this Jewish man, Jesus. Whom, by the way, was killed on a Roman cross. Then they must talk about the victory of Jesus over sin. And the victory of Jesus over death. And the victory of Jesus, yes, even over this Roman cross and His resurrection. Try as you may, Caesar, you cannot kill Christ. And then they must talk about the eternal reign and the rule of Jesus as universal King. King of kings that even one day your mighty emperor will bow down to. This is a message that they could be killed over and yet now they are speaking boldly about Him. Filled with boldness, in verse 14, to verbally speak this message without fear. And how do we deal with fear in our evangelism so that we, we might do what they're doing? How do we speak verbally the gospel message of Christ even in the face of honest hostility? And how do we do it without fear? Every Christian I've ever met and ever talked to about evangelism has that question. Here's the answer. It's by being so moved and overwhelmed with Jesus that you don't regard self any longer. Your only purpose is Christ. You notice it's the same answer for Paul's joy and imprisonment. How does Paul have joy in his circumstances? It's the same way that Christians overcome fear in evangelism. They are so confident in the Lord, so moved by Jesus, so in love with Christ, that regard for self diminishes and regard for Christ only increases. Paul writes and he says, there's been perhaps an unintended consequence of my imprisonment. The church is being strengthened. And brothers and sisters, instead of living for themselves, are living now for Christ. And our lives are being changed and confidence in the Lord is abounding and so boldness to speak about the Lord is abounding. Specifically, boldness to speak without fear. Church, that has always been the case from this point on all throughout church history, hasn't it? We see God's wonderful preservation of His people and it spurs us on to faithfulness ourselves. I read this week of two workers of the English Reformation in Oxford, England in the year 1555. They were named Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. 
Some of you know their names. They were faithfully proclaiming Christ in the Protestant Reformation and their punishment was to be burned at the stake. Not uncommon. As they were being tied to the stake and led to the stake and the the lumber was being prepared and the fire readied and they were preparing to burn, there came a shout from Hugh Latimer. This is what he yelled. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. For we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. They know, and we know what they're talking about. The candle that they're talking about is their very bodies. How do they go to the stake to be burned? View themselves as candles to be lit by God that shall never be extinguished in England for the sake of the gospel? It's because they see the faithful preservation of Christ. Centuries past. Of all of His saints who have been faithful to endure for His name. Men like Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley and countless other faithful martyrs of Christ stand even today for us as beacons of light of God's goodness to accomplish His purpose even if it cost us everything. And you know what? It can cost us our lives and we can give up those lives with joy because we know we gain absolutely everything. Paul might write in chapter 3 of this letter, I suffer the loss of all things. But he knows he hasn't really lost anything. Because the supreme worth and value of Christ is everything. He can write about his joy in prison. And the brothers and sisters in verse 14 can speak the word of the Lord with all boldness, without fear. Because they know in Christ they have gained everything. Church, our lives are about the proclamation of Christ. It's about the gospel being advanced. Whether that be in prison, our imprisonment, whether that be through the sacrifice of our security, our health, our safety, our reputation, we rejoice. The reason for our rejoicing is in the advancement of the gospel of Christ. That message that God in His love will forgive our sins if we trust in Jesus alone. If we place our faith in Christ alone. What's the reason for this apostle rejoicing? It's Christ. You and I can look to the faithful brothers and sisters who are this day underneath the altar in heaven, martyred for the name and sake of Christ. We can look at their reward. We can look at God's faithfulness to them. And we can see that by God's goodness, their message of salvation, which is Christ's message of salvation, has persevered to us today, to our ears and to our mouths. And we can trust that even if we have to lay down our lives, 
Christ will still win and succeed through our efforts. Father, would you spur within us evangelistic zeal, a passion for your name alone, Help us to lay aside every selfish ambition and and selfish desire and to give ourselves wholly, completely, clearly to You. And we can confess to You that we have fear. We ask that You would give us confidence in You and boldness that would remove fear. That we might speak the word faithfully, endure opposition, and see every opportunity and every moment and every circumstance and situation of life as a gift to spread your name to the lost. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.